there are so many ways to not speak the truth. And so we do ask for your spirit to guide us, to make us bold, um, to as a community, as we open up the scriptures, uh, we're not looking necessarily to, to put our flag down somewhere and stand up for something. But what we're looking for um, is to worship your son, Jesus, and that we would be uh, caught up in that worship and that we would know that we were made for you um, and that you are our spouse. And so would you show us that today in Christ's name? Amen. Hey, thank y'all for praying for me and with me. Uh, I was watching a show the other day. You know, this, is a, this is a difficult topic. Topic, Just here. Um, I was watching a show the other day called uh, My Octopus Teacher. Has anyone seen this? Absolutely amazing. Um, this guy had gone through a midlife crisis, sort of a mental breakdown type thing. And he was trying to get back into his, his normal life and, and to figure out who he was again, and, and he lived by the ocean in, I think, South Africa area, and um, to, to kind of jolt himself back into reality, he, he decided to go exploring on the ocean floor without a, uh, a, a he just had a snorkel on right, right next to his house, just to kind of like, uh, kind of get back to a normal way of being and living, and so the very early on, he goes down there and then he sees this uh, weird thing on the ocean floor that it looks like a bunch of rocks and seashells that are just kind of like on, uh, on, the, on the floor. And he's like, I don't know what that is. And then he goes back and explores it and explores it again and again and again. And it turns out that that was an octopus that had uh, formed, uh, formed a way to protect itself from predators just by pretending to be a bunch of jagged rocks and, and shells. And the, the whole documentary is about how this guy formed a relationship with an octopus so that the octopus may eventually make contact and then they have this beautiful, you know, relationship. And then he gets back, right? Um, to, to live in this world um, means to experience at some level sexual brokenness. Every one of us. And particularly when we think about this topic, you know, adultery, most of us just by instinct can't even begin to open ourselves up to hearing scripture because it's just too painful. It's just we want we want to protect. And just like secular culture, I think the church has both underemphasized and overemphasized human sexuality and how we use it or don't use it. And what I want to show you today despite where you're coming from, is that Scripture actually gives us the most beautiful and robust expression of human sexuality, but it takes a while for us to see it, to let our guard down, to take off the protective layers. Um, and no, no matter where you're coming from on this topic, you know, if you're more traditional in the room or if you're more modern I think it'd be helpful for us all to admit we, we all have our guard up just because we're living in a fallen world. And it's okay to admit that. Um, now, if, uh, if you watch particularly how Jesus, I mean, Jesus is the son of God, but he's also just a genius in how he handles people. 
And if you watch, particularly how wise and gentle he is with people who, who have been hurt by particularly this command when it's been broken, like the woman at the well in John 4, it'll, it'll change you. And if you watch how confrontational he is with religious types, people like me that speak about the scripture, and he says, you actually need to focus more on what's wrong inside of you as opposed to the external sins that you see in other people. That would be better for you to do, O religious leader. Um, what you're going to see is that that Christianity's sexual ethic is actually far more intense than any traditional person wants it to be and far more intoxicating than the modern view of sexual freedom. That's the point. That in some sense, it's, it's more sexy than even we can ever, ever dream of it being and far more intense than even the most traditional view. But before we jump in... Um, what, just on the surface, what does is, what is this commandment require of us? And that's where I think our, our, our denomination has a catechism that explains this. In the Shorter Catechism, it says, The seventh commandment requires, and listen to this, the preservation of our neighbor's chastity in heart, speech, and behavior. Very simple. Now, what is chastity? You know, uh, what was that movie? The Chastity Belt? What was that movie called? Um, anyways. Uh, this is where C.S. Lewis is helpful, as he always is. He, you know, he says, Chastity is the most unpopular of Christian virtues. There is no getting away from it. Listen, I didn't invent this. This is Christianity, okay? But this, is, this is what it is. This is the Christian rule. Either marriage with complete faithfulness to your partner... Or total abstinence. Now, this is so. This is what C.S. Lewis says. This is so difficult and so contrary to our instincts that obviously either Christianity is wrong, or our sexual instinct, as it now is, has gone wrong. Now, this is this is uh, what I want us to see. The scriptures say God says that the law, His law, His rules for life are actually a delight to our souls. That our heart, when we are in line with him, will actually crave life the way that he wants it to be. Now, how can that be? This is, this is where we're heading this morning. We are not uh, here to beat anybody else up or to beat ourselves up. We are here to see the beauty of this command. To see its attractiveness. And that's what I want to show you from, from the text that Christianity actually gives you the attractiveness of the best sexual ethic ever. That God's ways can actually be more delightful than anything you can imagine in your head and can make you long for His ways better than your own. But it's a very different type of attraction. It's a very different type of delight. It's a very different type of sexiness. Two points. Uh, the freedom of restraint... And the type of spouse God is. The freedom of restraint and the type of spouse God is. The freedom of restraint, point one. Um, I don't know if you watched the Winter Olympics, but my favorite event in the Winter Olympics, besides you know curling, is the, the bobsled uh, event. And if you watch the bobsled, at the very end of the, the run, they are just going so epically fast. 
And I began to think, you know, what would happen if that bobsled went off its tracks, you know? And you know what would happen. They would either be dead or, or horribly hurt. And, and the reason why is because the bobsled is meant to be operated, used within a very specific location and space. And when it's on the track, man, it's beautiful. But if it isn't, it's destructive. And that's how our sexuality operates. It's to be explored and enjoyed with one man and one woman in marriage. That's the scripture's teaching. And the reason why is because when you give yourself to another person sexually, your body instinctually attaches to that person emotionally, whether you want that to happen or not. That your, your body is making commitments even if your mouth doesn't. And so, another example from a modern show called Upload. It's a futuristic show where they have this, it's kind of like a Tinder app where you, you use the app to get, to get together and have sex with somebody. And so this couple does that. And, and then afterwards, uh, the guy gets up from having sex and he says, all right, I'm out. And, and she said, wait, you said before we agreed to do this that we could talk afterwards, at least for a little bit. And he said, no, nah, I'm out. Um, and then gives her a rating, you know. And the, the reason why that feels so hollow is because your body is making commitments, whether you say it or not, your body is making commitments to another person that says, you can have me, all of me, and I want all of you, and that's true even in the future. Whether you want, whether you want to communi communicate that or not, that's what happens when you're sexually active with somebody. And it's because sex is that powerful. And it's very naive. I, I know in the modern world, we just sort of think of it as an appetite, but it's naive to think that you're not going to get hurt if you use sex as an appetite. And that's why it feels so empty for someone to just treat it like that. Because you're inevitably going to hurt others or hurt yourself. So, the, you know, I, I am not fond of sort of pointing out the, the flaws of my favorite golf forever, um, Tiger Woods. But if you go back, if you go back, you can listen to this on, on YouTube, 2007, 2008. He confesses to the whole world and to the people in the room that he's hurt most um, how he got to a place of serial adultery. And you could write a Ph.D. on his confession because he, he said, he said, look, I, I got to a place where I felt like I earned the right to please myself however I wanted because I worked harder than anybody. I was the best golfer. I transcended everybody, and so I feel like I, I could do whatever I wanted to. And he, and he said this, I came to the conclusion that the normal rules for human behavior didn't apply to me. He felt as if, as if he had earned the right to be a, above the rules because of all that he had been through. Now, this is where the geniusness of Indra Brockman comes into play. Because she says, and I'm paraphrasing her, but she says... That the ninth commandment and the seventh commandment interlock here. Deception. Lying. Do not bear false witness. This is what happens internally to get to a place of adultery. This, this is the lie that undergirds adultery. You begin to tell yourself, look, no one knows what I've been through. No one knows what I've suffered. No one knows the place that I, ha that I have been to. 
No one knows how bad it's been for me. And so I deserve this. I've earned this through what I've been through. And that's how deception works. Through forgetting the gospel. And when that happens, when that happens, we use our sexuality for our own purposes to fill up only that which God can fill. Which has the opposite effect of what it was intended. It's the opposite of its design. So what it, what is its purpose? What is marriage's purpose? What is sex purpose? It's, re, it's to reveal God to us. That's why God gave it to us. And I want to tell you uh, the beauty of making efforts to be a, a faithful person. The beauty of fidelity is that it reveals, over time, it reveals to others the gospel. So much so that it can convert people. I had a friend once who had this woman that converted in his ministry, but she didn't tell him until years and years later. And she said, hey, I don't know if you know this, but uh, I became a Christian under your ministry. And, he, and so he was asking her questions and he was like thinking it was one of his sermons, you know, it was really good or whatever. And uh, she said, no, it wasn't one of your sermons. Uh, one night my parents sat me down and they told me they were going to get a divorce. And uh, because of some dysfunction connected to this command. And I came to hear you preach. And before you got up to preach, you were singing a song. And throughout the whole song, you were holding your wife's hand. And that's when I converted to Christianity. Because I saw that there could be hope for relationships. And I didn't feel like that that was true. And it changed me. And what I want to tell you is that God really does. Um, I've seen this practically in, in my own family's life. God uses your obedience. He really does use slow faithfulness at whatever stage in your life that you are. Even, even if you're guilty of this command, which we all sort of are, as we're about to see. And it's like when you are faithful over the years, it's like a tree that bears fruit in its season whose leaf does not wither. It continues to produce. Now, what we think of, and I'm, look, y'all, I'm just like y'all. I feel, in some sense, just as comfortable in the world as I do the church. And so, I'm in it. Um, what we think of as freedom in our culture right now, it does look great. Life without restraints. You give me what I want. Give it to me now. But the end of that is bitterness. The end of that is Gehenna. Hell. Gehenna was a trash heap outside the city walls that was burned up. And Jesus says, make drastic measures not to give yourself to whatever you lust after, to whatever your eye sees and it wants. And the flip side, you know, God's ways of, of beauty are not beautiful at first. And I want you to think that through. Why would God do it? Why would his ways be so hard and unappealing at first? You know, like it's in a, it's in a book. <laughs> Why don't I give you a picture that's like hot, you know? It's because he wants you to trust him up front. 
How would you know or how would he know that you actually trusted him if it made total sense to you on the front end? It's the very opposite of lust. And what this is how beautiful God is. He's patient enough, just like that guy that comes down to the ocean floor and explores with this octopus day after day. And he draws you out to himself. And he wants you to make contact with him. Now, even, even when our families and our churches have been horribly damaged by breaking this command, or even if our families and churches have done the damage, God will get his way with you. And he will slowly draw you out. And here's what God is saying about this command. How we think about sexuality is exactly linked and rooted to how we think about him. And here's the question. Do you belong to him or do you belong to yourself? Are you a creature or are you trying to fabricate the fact that I, I got to make up my own reality? Again, we can shield ourselves from the proper use of sex. And we do this in the church by being too prudish, by trying to be like too pure, which the scriptures celebrate sex within its proper context. Or we do it through being licentious and just doing whatever we want to with our bodies. And God says what you do or don't do with your body reveals what you believe about me. And that was unique in the ancient world. There's a commentator named Durham that says everywhere in the ancient Near East, adultery was a crime against persons. But in Israel, it was first and foremost a crime against Yahweh, against the Lord. This means that the best way to get the most out of sex is to go to the designer of it. And he says sex at its best, this is what it is. It's a self-sacrificial act to communicate to the other person, other person I am completely undivided in my devotion to you. And you can trust that in the future. And your needs and your body come first. They come first. And what adultery communicates is the very opposite. That I get what I want. And I elevate what I want over what you want. And when that happens, when you don't restrain yourself... You inevitably start living separate lives. You become disintegrated. You spread yourself thin. Nathaniel Hawthorne in the Scarlet Letter says, No man for any considerable period can wear one face to himself and another to the multitude without finally getting bewildered as to which may be true. This is the beauty of the gospel. This is the beauty of the gospel. Um, you don't have to try to be good enough here. Nor do you have to live in the bondage of just doing whatever, whatever feels right to you. And the beauty of being one person. I had my, one of my best buddies. He was living in an adulterous life. And he, he said about the day that he got caught. He said, Matt, I was so thankful to have gotten caught. Because I was exhausted. And I was tired. And I wanted, I wanted to come back home <laughs> to God. The gospel comes to you and says, you don't have to be two different people. You can be integrated. You can be attached. 
this is why we're, we're going to confess this. Troy's going to, Troy Power's going to lead us in this confession. But adultery, any sin, is really a sin against God. It hurts other people, but ultimately and foremost, it's, it's communicating something that you believe about God. And this is how it goes in your brain. You say, look, I'm afraid that God's not going to be enough for me in my, in my marriage, in my relationships. And so you say, yeah, I am, I am going to look at that woman who's got a better body. Because what God's given me isn't enough. Or you say, you look at another marriage and you look and you say, that husband is way more attuned to what his wife needs and wants. Mine isn't. And so, yeah, I am going to fantasize what it's going to be like and what it would be like to be with a man that actually paid attention to me. And Jesus says, amputate. Cut it out. And the reason why, the reason why is because that lust is shielding you from belief in the goodness of God. That what he's given you in your present circumstances is actually, not only is it enough, but he wants to reveal himself to you through your present circumstances and through exactly what's going on in your life right now. And Jesus is saying, if, if you don't take drastic measures, when your heart and your mind and your eyes lust, you're going you're gonna to destroy yourself. So gouge out your eye and cut off your hand. And the reason why is not because God's cruel, but because God wants to show you what kind of spouse he is. He wants to reveal to you the, the gospel. And here's the glory of who God is. He knows what our hearts are actually like with him. He knows that when we wake up in the morning, we really, we want to do a million other things than be with him. Don't lie. Now, if he made you, and if he made you for love for him to be reciprocated back, what does that mean? Well, that means that we've been unfaithful to him. That means that we've allowed other lovers in the bedroom with us. In, in articles where, where lawyers and therapists talk about divorce, they say, you know, divorce is, is damaging, but it's, it's almost lethal when adultery happens inside the home, inside the marriage bed. So it almost never happens there. It always happens outside the home. And if you don't see that in the story of Scripture, this is what we've done to God. We, we've taken other lovers into the very heart of where only He can fill. And we've said... We want to trust you. We want to trust you, money. We want to trust you, physical appearance. We want to trust you to fill us up, to take us out of the land of Egypt and give us freedom. And we've used his bedroom language and attached it to things in this world that cannot satisfy. And look, the, the whole point of me telling you this is not so that you feel terrible. It's so that you realize, oh my gosh, God has been faithful to me. He's not, he's not surprised at our unfaithfulness. And Jesus says, look, I have come for the broken. That's the whole point. So don't think just because you've never committed physic, physical adultery that you're in the clear. You're not. You're guilty. I'm guilty. And what the, the, 
The work to do is that we don't need to go to work on culture. We need to go to work on our hearts. As my, as my professor would say, Sinclair Ferguson, the, the heart of the matter is really a matter of the heart, you know? <laughs> but, but, yo, what that means, and this is hyperbolic language that Jesus uses, gouge out your eye, cut off your hand. You, this, this is the point. You've got to get to a place in your Christian life where you say, whatever it takes. Because God wants my heart. So whatever it takes. You can know God up here. Gregory the Great, he said, true knowledge of God is impregnated by love. The heart. <coughs> Meaning, every time you look at pornography, every time you imagine yourself with another spouse, you need to begin to tell yourself, I'm forgetting the gospel. And he's not surprised. He's not caught off guard. He just simply says in this command, you, you don't have to do that. You can stop. You can look at me. Look at how faithful I've been to, to you. Look at the sadness you're causing me every second you refuse to repent and give me your heart. That's what he wants. And what he says in this command is that, let me show you what I can do with your heart. I can make it long for me. You know, God is so interesting because he, he's, not, he's not like us. He gets hurt. He, he allows himself to get hurt. But he doesn't feel ashamed of himself. Ever. Nor when, when he gets hurt, he doesn't move away from people. He's never, ever insecure about what we've done to him. He's not mad at himself. You know, this is, this is what happens in the aftermath of adultery. All these terrible things, shame, everything comes in. But God, he's so vulnerable with us and continues to plod towards us every day. And he just says, come. He says he still wants to be with us, in bed with us, never to make us feel guilty, but just to show you that his love is very deep. Now, I want to... That's the point of this command, by the way. I want to I say something before we close, just because I know there's a lot of particular situations and scenarios that require a lot of wisdom to speak through on an individual level. And again, we can't cover everything on a given 30 to 40 minutes, right? But I do, I do want to say something before we, we close. Sometimes in a fallen world... This is, this is what the breaking of this command results in. Sometimes that means that the victim of this sin, somebody's committed adultery on you, um, we should not force that person to enter back into marriage with that other person that they were with that committed the sin on them. Sometimes that's the wise approach. And the church has done some bad stuff in this area. And I think we need to own that. We've, we've encouraged people to enter back into abusive relationships and it should never have happened. And God can sometimes bring reconciliation, but we should never ever try and force victims of adultery as if that will cause the unfaithfulness of that spouse to just magically get better. Or they, they magically repent. Only the Spirit of God can bring repentance. So that's what I want to say in terms of how the church's approach to victims of this sin should be. The flip side to this, 
is that if you are in an adulterous relationship right now, this is what repentance looks like. This is the first step. Tell somebody. And then over time, you need to get to a place where you take drastic measures to restrain yourself. And Jesus says, and I've seen it with my very own eyes, Jesus says that that's true freedom. To come clean. To be one integrated person. And there will be consequences. As with breaking all of God's commands, there's always consequences, but there is grace. There is grace for all who cry to Him. And finally, regardless, in the end, even the best marriages, even the most nourishing of sex lives, it's not enough to fill you up. Because it ain't God. Only God can fill you up. No human being can fill you up and make you whole like God can, even in the best human relationships. And that's ultimately what this command points to, that God is never-ending and unfading and so strong in His love towards you, so much so that He says, my steadfast love is better than your actual life. It's better than you living. That my steadfast love is the point of everything. That's ultimately what I think this command points to. Um, Let's pray and continue in worship through confession and assurance. Father, as we confess Psalm 51 and we hear King David uh, in the aftermath of committing this particular sin, that you would move us to, to know that we are no better than him, nor are we worse than him, but that we offer the gospel is open.